0: Mark 16, verse number 8, And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher. For they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Now when Jesus was risen early in the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And when he went and he told them that they had been with him, as they mourned and wept, And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. And after that he appeared in another form unto them, or two of them, as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. Afterward he appeared unto the eleven, as they sat at meat, and abraded them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had Seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these things or these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. So in June 5th, 2011, uh, John MacArthur, a famous evangelical pastor, completed a 40-year-long series of preaching through The books of the New Testament. Uh, The last book that he preached was the Gospel of Mark. And so he had, I heard him do an interview and said that he had a uh, contract for Bible commentaries. And so he would preach through a book and take his notes and send them off for a Bible commentary. And so that's what he did. And he he preached through the the New Testament. The last one was the Gospel of Mark. In his last sermon, which is on this section, He said that the latter part of Mark was spurious, not inspired, and not the word of God. I remember hearing about it whenever it happened and how everyone thought it was just a a fitting in to that 40 year long uh, series. But to me, it seems rather odd that he would preach a message on something he thought was not the word of God Um, in his uh, study Bible. You can go and read and he has a long little section on why he doesn't believe uh, the passage that we read this evening. Well, sorry, verse nine, anyway, uh, shouldn't be in the Bible. And I didn't mention it this morning because um, but there is a debate regarding the ending of Mark. And the view is that it's probably not authentic. And. The reason I mention it now is because the majority of people now would hold that view. MacArthur is not a a liberal, but he does represent a view that most people now accept that this ending is not in, or should not be, in the gospel. This is a a modern view, though. It's a view taken from modern translations of the scriptures and from uh, a modern view of Textual criticism, and I, I don't mean modern in the sense, just lately, right, in a series of time. But I'm talking about a a, a modernistic um, textual criticism. It's post Enlightenment. It's a different way of thinking about um, interpretation, a different way of thinking about truth, and so post Enlightenment, and with this this view of textual criticism. Uh, is become more and more popular that this isn't even the Word of God. The reason I didn't mention it is because I went back and forth, and I thought, well, I don't want to be anybody. Uh, I don't want, don't want anybody to cause anybody to doubt their Bible, or to call into question the Scriptures. And so, you know, kind of think back and forth. Well, is it even worth mentioning? First of all, because I, I don't think that anyone would have a problem doubting the scripture. But on the other hand, I think it's important that because this is now the prevailing view, that we at least know about it, if, if you've never heard of it, at least to know and to give a brief defense of this traditional ending of the gospel of Mark so that you can know that you can trust your Bible. Um, this has been the prevailing view, and that's why it's Called in some circles the traditional view, because this has been the prevailing view um, until you know the last 100, 200 years or so. In fact, even the major confessions that uh, conservative Christians hold to, such as the London Baptist Confession Faith or the New Hampshire Confession, have Mark 16:16 16, 16 as one of their doctrinal proof texts on baptism. So it's interesting to me that um, in the 1600s, and I think the New Hampshire was maybe the 1800s, 1700s, 1800s. Um, but it's interesting to me that Baptists during those times had no problems not only quoting this and believing as the word of God, but used it as a proof of this is what we believe about baptism. And so this is not a... This is not a way out there theory. It's just we we are believing what confessional Christians have believed um, down as a majority for uh, nearly eighteen hundred years. Jeff Riddle said the first three hundred years of church history, there's no evidence of any conflict about the ending of Mark. Now, there is from the year three hundred to five hundred people. There's evidence of a conflict because that's the time Most likely that Something happened in some of the text But from 500 AD To 1800 AD There was a consensus About the traditional ending of Mark So there was a consensus among Christians That Mark ended in Mark 1620 But it wasn't until the early 1800s That this began to be called into question And now it has the consensus has been overturned, and the majority of uh, Christians will will at least cast doubt upon this last part of the Book of Mark. And I'll say here that I'm indebted to Dr. Riddle on his work on the subject. Um, he's got a lot of good information on, he's got a podcast uh, about uh, the Bible, and uh, he's got a lot of good information on that. Um, I listened to his debate he did with James White, that's one available on YouTube, on this subject. So, uh, he he put a lot of time and and effort in defending the uh, traditional ending of Mark. But this is, what I want to do tonight is by no means exhaustive. I just want to give you a few high points, just in case you ever come across it. Or if somebody uh listen to our sermon and say, "Hey, your pastor preached from the ending of Mark sixteen, and it says in my Bible that that's not even the Word of God. But at least you'll you'll be able to to say why? Because all new translations have this in brackets. and a lot of them will have this is not in the the manuscripts. So if you go and buy pretty much any Bible besides the King James Bible, um, it's going to say that in the scripture. It's going to say that in the text. It'll say, it'll have a footnote, it'll have it in brackets, it'll have it italicized. Um, One uh, Bible publisher, the man that's in charge of the editing of that publication, I think it's the NET, says that he would like to see it gone and just removed from their Bibles altogether. And he said... What he wants to do is put it, if it has to be there, put it in the smallest font possible. So, not only not casting doubt on it, but he wants to have that removed. So, we're going to hit those highlights first of, of why this is in the Bible. And then we're going to finish up with the devoted disciples that we see. So, it's a kind of a, a two part message. Um, first, defending the ending. And then the devoted disciples in the end. Well, one view today, and this is the the standard view right now, what most people will go along with, is it has a postmodern ending. So what I mean by that is this view believes that verse number eight is where the gospel of Mark ends. And so this became popular about 50 years ago. That the scholars are saying that it just ends at verse number eight. And there are some who say that's a fitting ending to the book of Mark. So no one has seen the risen Lord. The Marys are doubting and afraid and the gospel was left open ended. And that's how it ends. No one said anything to anybody and everybody was afraid. No one has seen Jesus everyone's confused no one knows what's going on the end crystal hates uh stories that don't have a a clear ending uh movies that are ambiguous i don't like them lots of times but sometimes they they are kind of fun because then you just try to figure out what happened um we watched a survival movie one time and and it ends where you don't know if the guy makes it or not. So you watch this whole movie about him trying to survive out in the wilderness and it ends and maybe he made it or maybe you're not. So that was kind of uh, frustrating to watch a movie that long and not even know you want the guy to make it and you don't know if he does or not. So that that's kind of a postmodern thing uh, to where you get to make up the ending and you can be however you want to and, and it's ambiguous. and So you have to think about uh, what it might be, and and it, it'll suit you, and you you can just make up your own ending. Well, that's how they think that Mark was doing. That Mark was saying, "Well, I'm gonna have an ambiguous ending. Did Jesus really rise from the dead, or not? Did they believe, or not? And what it's supposed to do is evoke emotion in you to make you think, what am I? How am I gonna handle this message?'" I actually heard a man preach the text this way. I have my notes at home where I was taking notes as he was preaching. And his application was that we're supposed to fill in the rest. Because he said he didn't think that, he thinks the gospel ended in verse number 8. And he said, so what will happen? I don't know. What will happen if you don't believe? What will happen if you don't go out and tell? And leaves it open-ended. Well, Mark was not writing a postmodern film script. Um, it wasn't some, some artsy uh, uh, postmodern movie or anything. He, he's writing as a, a first century uh, witness to, to say that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And so that is anachronistic to say that Mark was writing the gospel in the first century like we write literature today in the year 2023 right so that's taking our culture and putting it back in the first century and say well see mark is just like us he's he's making a an art statement where you fill in the rest E.F. Hill said uh, Lightfoot in 1937 had a view such as this that his purpose was in concluding was to leave the reader in a state of reverent awe which anticipated an event or a crisis which was found to have quality of absolute finality whatever that means so it's supposed to draw up emotions in you and then you just sit back and say wow what happened i wonder what was going to go on nt wright who is No friend of ours on a vast majority of issues did say this. He said, I tried for some years to believe that Mark was really a postmodernist to deliberately leave his gospel with a dark, puzzling ending. But I've now given up that attempt. It structurally could not have ended without the story of the risen and vindicated Jesus. mean, it just doesn't make sense that mark would write a story of the gospel and then leave it up in the air whether he rose from the dead beach said it seems unlikely that mark would end the gospel on a note of fear for the whole purpose and import of the gospel is that men should not be afraid the disciples were often afraid and jesus would say fear not and we're to leave the disciples unbelieving in a way, and the women afraid. Another thing people used to say is it's not really scripture, is that the language is different, or there's different words used, and it's not in the Markan style. But this ending fits and flows with the words that God, Mark uses throughout the whole gospel. And the style belongs to Mark the style is as that of Mark there's actually a theory that says that there was a forger who made up the ending of Mark and he was so good that he copied Mark's style to make it seem like Mark wrote it so they, they read this and say well it sounds like Mark uses the same words as Mark does but it's not in the scripture so he must be a very excellent forger I guess the other view could be is that this is Mark that wrote the whole thing and it sounds like Mark because he's the one that wrote it, but that's not how they took it. So there's there's a couple views that people take with this portion of the text. One is that there's a shorter ending. So there's Mark 8 then there's one more verse. I mentioned John MacArthur. He's got a version or one that he spearheaded the legacy standard bible and even though he doesn't think that this passage should be in the word of god his translation does include it but he also includes that shorter ending which this is what the shorter ending says they promptly reported all these instructions to peter and his companions and after that jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred imperishable preaching of eternal salvation This was unheard of apart from Rome until very recently, including this sh- shorter version. So this is just unheard of, really, um, until, until recently. So, but now I would imagine that in more and more modern translations, they're going to start including this in the text. So the first theory is that there is no ending. It just ends in Mark 8 with mystery. The second theory is it has the wrong ending. And that verse, that phrase I just read is the real ending. So it's eight and nine with that other ending. The third theory is that Mark did have an ending, but it was lost. And then someone comes along and makes up this ending. And then we've just uh, used that as tradition. But I hold that this traditional ending has been preserved by God in his providence and that Mark ends in 1620 just like it, just where your Bible says it does. So why do I hold that position? Do I hold the position just because I want to or just because uh, it's in my Bible? Therefore, that's the way it ought to be. Well, there's a lot of evidence that we have that this is correct. It's not that this is some uh, just some view that that you just take and hold to it despite all the evidence. Sometimes uh, people who believe to uh, in a traditional text, um, the textus receptus, that that, that we just uh, don't think through the issue at all. But there is evidence that this is the word of God of all the extant manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of Mark, 99% of those manuscripts include uh, verses 9 through 20. So if you take all the manuscripts that we have of Mark, and then go through and look at all the manuscripts that include the longer ending, 99% of them include it. So, that's one big check for, for the longer ending that most of the manuscripts have them. I have a collection of Bibles at home, various translations. Some of them were given to me. Some when I worked for a book publisher and I, I picked them up and they would send them back as returns. And I went through and looked at the latter ending. The NASB says, while the majority of of the Greek manuscripts contain these verses, the earliest and most reliable do not. And then it has the, uh, the shorter ending inserted in the text. Um, the ESV says in the brackets in the text, right before the verse, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. So NASB, ESV, I said the LSB. Uh, The NET, those are the ones I looked at. Um, Those are very, very popular. And what do they say? Some of the earliest manuscripts. Now, 99% of them do have it. But then they say, well, some of the earliest and best manuscripts. You know how many that equals out to? You know how many some are? Two. Two manuscripts do not have it. These two manuscripts don't have the traditional ending. And if you take those two manuscripts together and compare one with another in the Gospels, they differ between themselves 3,000 places. And, you know, they might not be significant differences, but 3,000 is still 3,000. And so you take two manuscripts that that don't even agree with themselves, that don't have them, and then 99% of the others do have it. And because of this, mo- the, this modernistic post-Enlightenment view of textual criticism, they say, well, we're going to go with these because we believe these are the earliest and the best. And they don't say two manuscripts do this. They say some of the earliest and the best. So that, that's one reason why. is a pretty good reason, I think, that, that we say, well, if 99% of them have it and only two don't, Then maybe we all go with the majority. Not only do we have the weight of the text containing it, we also have early um, attestation of the traditional ending by men of early Christianity. Justin Martyr, writing in the year 150 AD. So we're talking 90 years or 100 years or so after when this would have been written. Justin Martyr quoted the ending of of Mark. So we we don't have a manuscript from that time, but we do have Justin Martyr quoting it. Um, One man in the year 160 attempted to collate and write a gospel harmony of all four gospels. So he took Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and tried to make one gospel. And so, you know, it would start with John because in the beginning was the word, and then you would go and he'd try to put them all in order and, when they're, and to have one gospel. He, in the year 160 AD, doing this work, has the traditional ending of Mark, 16 through 20. Hippolytus quotes it in the year 200. Irenaeus, in his book Against Heresies, He wrote that in the year 180, says this, um, and this is on the Internet. That's where I found it. You can look it up. Wherefore, also Mark, the interpreter and follower of Peter, does thus commence his gospel narrative, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then he goes on and says also. Towards the conclusion of the gospel, Mark says, So then after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up in heaven and sits on the right hand of God. So, Irenaeus, in a book attacking heretical notions about the Lord Jesus Christ, says Mark opens his gospel with chapter 1 and then closes his gospel and quotes Mark six nineteen and 20. So in the year 180, we have people not only quoting this, but using this traditional ending to defend the faith against heretics. It would be odd that a man writing (coughs) to defend from heretics would take a heretical passage and, and use it so early in the history of the churches. Well, let's, let's think about um, why there would be a debate to start with. Why would there be a traditional ending, a shorter ending, and then no ending? So what seems more likely? That a heretic scribe leaves something out that he doesn't like? Or a faithful churchman scribe add something to the gospel. Now what seems more likely? That a heretic would remove something from the scripture or a faithful person would make something up and put it in. It doesn't seem very likely to me that someone who loves the word of God would add something to it, despite the motives. But it does seem likely to me that a heretic would try to take away something from the Word of God. Would it be more likely the heretic who already tampers with the Word of God would, would remove something that speaks of the resurrection of Christ or an orthodox believer adding to the Word of God because he wants to, wants it to be respected? That doesn't seem very likely. The more likely scenario would be that if something is removed, it was removed for nefarious reasons. Or does it seem more likely that for almost 1800 years, the consensus amongst uh, confessing Christians was that this traditional ending was valid and that God has providentially preserved his text or that God would allow a spurious text to be used for over a thousand years, only to be discovered to be incorrect in the 19th century? What seems more likely? Yes, there was debate because there were versions where it was omitted. But the consensus has been that this is the word of God. So does it seem more likely that God who gave us his word and promised that his word is more sure than the earth that we're standing on, and then gave that to his church and said that this church, the pillar and the ground of truth, would endure until he returns. And so you have a promise of perpetuity both of his word and his church. Does it seem more likely that God would allow a spurious section, half a page worth of of uh, unorthodox additions to His Word, and then we not find out about it until um, unbelieving critics come along in the nineteenth century. Well, that doesn't seem very likely to me either. So, if they, if you're trying to prove that it's not, they don't. I don't think they do a very good job of proving that it's not. You take two, two manuscripts and say well these two manuscripts don't have them and you can study where those manuscripts came from and also does it seem more likely that a text that is read and and reread, and used in churches would be in good condition after thousands of years or would it seem more likely that um, texts that people weren't reading would, would make it right so just because it's early doesn't mean it's good E.F. Hill said there are many reasons why these verses might have been omitted by the New Testament documents, which do admit them, omit them. Right? So somebody might not like it. Um, somebody might have started and just stopped. Uh, somebody might have, uh, you know, gone along with one of the ancient heresies. There's all kinds of reasons why it could have been omitted, but no reason has yet been invented which can explain. Either how a hypothetical lost ending of Mark could have disappeared from all the New Testament documents, or how the author of Mark's gospel could have left it incomplete with no ending at all. So, there's all kinds of reasons why they could have left it out. I can't think of any good reasons why, as he said, that it just disappeared. Because without this traditional ending, we wouldn't have what is essential in the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas and then of the twelve. Just from that perspective, wouldn't it be odd that the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul says is, of a necessity would it be that Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and that he rose again the third day and then he was seen of the apostles, that that would be left out? You know, you say, well, you've got the Bible there. You can read Matthew and Luke and John. This was a witness. This was the early witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, I mean, imagine if you were the the poor church that had the gospel of Mark, and that's the only gospel that you had early on. Like many, like there were churches that were. Well, you wouldn't have the gospel that Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and then uh, seen and witnessed of the the disciples. No, the theologically, it makes sense that this ending is in the gospel. Um, Manuscript wise, it the weight is that it should be here. Uh, providentially speaking, that God preserves his word, it makes sense that it's here. The other side can't tell us what happened to it or why it would have been omitted or why that, or even this, why they don't have the courage of their convictions to take it out of the Bible to start with. You know, if they, if they truly believe that this is, shouldn't be in there, then have the courage of your convictions and just take it out. Don't put it in brackets or italicize it. Because all that does is make people doubt their Bible, but to be scholarly and get along, I suppose. I don't know why they do it, but but uh, the fact is, we have we should not doubt that this should be in the scriptures. So now we're going to go and look and see, and this is really my last reason why. I believe that this should be in the text. Is that it makes sense that it should be here? So, Jesus commissions his church in verse 15 to go into the world and to preach the gospel. So, we have a whole section here of the disciples who wouldn't believe. The women were afraid. Mary Magdalene comes and says, I saw Jesus. They didn't believe. The two on the road to Emmaus comes, and we saw Jesus. They didn't believe. They were told the rest. They didn't believe. And then Jesus comes and, and rebukes them for their unbelief. But now these same disciples who wouldn't believe the testimony of someone else are going to go out into the world and tell the story to people who are hostile to Jesus. Hard-hearted men who refused to listen to the testimony now have to go out into the world of the Gentiles, who are not only, some may be hostile to it, but most have no idea what he would even be talking about. So they're going to go out into a world and talk about Jesus who died and rose from the dead. And they say, well, who's Jesus? According to scriptures, scriptures, what are you talking about? I mean, that, that's a scenario that, you know, we don't think about often. And because nobody's going to, you know, you drive down the road and people has got Christmas decorations up and you ask them why they have Christmas decorations up. And I would say most of them would say, well, it has something to do with Jesus, even if they couldn't explain it. Right. So there, there's at least some knowledge in our culture that Jesus existed. But they're going to go out into the world and proclaim a gospel of Jesus who died and then rose from the dead in a context where people don't have the first clue about these kind of things. Right now they're afraid and they're fearful and they're doubting. How is this going to happen? You know, it seems impossible if you just stop and think about it for a moment. But these 11 men and a group of fearful women and a few others are going to preach a gospel first to their own community to people <coughs> to, who hate the Lord Jesus. They just put him to death. And then they're going to go spread that message throughout the whole world to where not only will that he believed and proclaimed there, but all over the world, not only in their generation, but for thousands of years. Could you imagine that? It's hard to think about. It's hard, you know, it's hard to put that together, that this would happen naturally. We're not talking about bold, um, clever marketers that had a great idea. And then they're brilliant at a marketing campaign. We're talking about fearful, doubting, hard hearted fishermen and tax collectors. Who are told to go out and preach the message that until five minutes ago, you yourselves were having a hard time believing. Jesus said, you guys are hard hearted and unbelieving. Now I want you to go out and preach the message to people who don't even believe as much as you do. That they would believe and be saved. But it happened didn't it? It happened because we have got the gospels here. It happened because we believe it. The message spread. If they had not spread it. It would not have been spread. This small group of people. Who are plagued by cowardice and unbelief. Are given the task to preach the message. Of the good news of salvation. How do they do it? By the grace of God, by God's sovereign grace. And according to his sovereign will, these men were the instruments by which God's grace and power shines forth. The gospel goes forth and people are saved, not because of the courage of the men and not because of their power, but because of the power of the gospel. Not the power of the preacher or the presentation, but it was the power of the gospel. Go forth and preach. Those that receive the message, Jesus said, will be saved, and those that don't will be damned. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he believeth not shall be damned. Well, does that mean that you have to be baptized to go to heaven? No, but you're not saved by baptism. Baptism. But you're also not saved by faith. You're saved by grace through faith, right? You're not saved by your believing. You're saved by Christ. And he is the object of your believing. Right? So, so it's not what we do. It's what Christ has done. And so these people were unbelieving. And Jesus says, but if you believe, you'll be saved. Why is the baptism added? Well, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what a Christian ought to do, is, is be baptized when you're saved. I mean, if, if someone says, well, I'm saved, but I'm not baptized, is that, the question is why? Well, you ought to be. Jesus said you ought to be. Well, why, why wouldn't you be? That's the same line of thought here. You're supposed to. That's what Christians do. Christians believe. You can't be a Christian if you don't have faith in Christ. And so, but you're not saved by how much you believe. You're saved by the object of your faith. You're saved by Christ, by grace, through faith. So the apostles go forth and they're going to preach a message and say, Believe. Believe and be baptized. And so as the apostles go forth, their message is going to be authenticated by sign gifts. And so that's, and these signs shall follow. So how does this happen? Well, there's something more than just in these men that's going to enable this to happen. So it's listed a bunch of sign gifts. Where do these sign gifts come from? Well, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and empowers them they receive power from God not only to preach the word but to preach it in power and with courage and with these sign gifts the Lord himself is empowering the preaching of the word so as Harold has been preaching through Acts in Sunday school You see how different the disciples are in Acts than they are um, just two months earlier in the Gospels. Fearful and unbelieving and and hard-hearted and not understanding. Then you get to Acts chapter 2 and Peter laying out the Scriptures and connecting all these dots about the Psalms and what David is saying. What happened? They were astonished. They thought they were drunk. They said, "That's not the drunk. We're not drunk. We're speaking in tongues because that's what uh, was prophesied in the book of Joel. These are the signs that followed them. This is the supernatural blessing of the word. And these sign gifts, you see, that they're all there in the book of Acts, except for one. So the signs of the apostles." In my name, they shall cast out devils. Well, they did that in Acts 16. Speak with tongues, Acts 2 and uh, Acts 10. They shall take up serpents. You read that in Acts 28, 3, where uh, Paul was bit by the deadly snake. Um, if they drink deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. That's one that there isn't anything in Acts 1, but they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. And that's all through the book of Acts, healing of the sick. One Baptist wrote this. The great doubt concerning the genuineness of these verses render it unwise to take these verses as foundation or doctrine unless supported by genuine portions of the New Testament. So there is a Baptist for you going the way. It's, you shouldn't believe these texts, especially um, these sign gifts, unless you can find some genuine scripture. But the fact is all but that one happened in the book of Acts. You know, he's kind of mocking people who believe, well, you know, this getting bit by snakes thing, that's, uh, that's just ridiculous. We can't believe that. Well, in Acts 28, Paul, that happened to Paul. Speaking in tongues, casting out devils, healing the sick. Those are all things that that are historically verified. John Gill quoted a Jewish history at the same time that says Sabbas, surnamed Justice, so you remember him from Acts 1, drank a poisonous draught and received grace of the Lord and received no hurt. So this was a Jewish history that said one of these guys drank poison and didn't die. So you can take that uh, for however you want to take it. But I believe that it happened. I believe that this was true because Jesus said it, because I believe this is the word of God. If we take the context, context here, the disciples were rebuked for their unbelief, but then it says these signs will follow them that believe. So the disciples were given apostolic gifts, gifting of the Holy Spirit of God to empower them to go forth And complete the mission that God would have them complete. And to attest that this really happened. And so we have Luke that comes along and says, yeah, this all happened. It's funny that many of these critics would have us doubt the testimony of God's word. And remain in unbelief about the scripture. It's ironic that the critics of this section do the same thing that the apostles were doing. Yes, we have this testimony, but I don't believe it. Yes, we have the testimony of Jesus rising from the dead, the testimony that the signed gifts were just for these 12 apostles and not for everybody else, but I don't believe it. The testimony of believers' baptism, we don't believe it. It's interesting that that, that approach it causes doubt upon the Word of God. The theme of the hardness of hearts and unbelief is seen throughout this scripture or throughout this gospel but now in the blessing of the new covenant not only are they going to believe as Jesus says but they are going to go forth and preach with the Lord working with them in verse 20 and confirming the word with signs following Christ is going to send them out to preach their hard hearts have been softened their faith has been increased. The spirit has come and blessings of the new covenant will empower the church in faithful gospel preaching and declaration. And as we close, I've noted many times through this series about the Mark and sandwich where Mark will start a topic, go to something else, and then come back to it later. We've seen that many times. Mark will say something, change the subject, then come back to that original subject and then you got the bread and then the meat in that in that section of scripture that ties it all together. I think that he does this with the whole gospel. Mark 1.1 1, 1 says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Verse 15 says, and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And Then Mark 1.17, Jesus said, come ye after me and I will make you fishers of men." the end of the book mark 16:15 go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature verse 19 so then after the lord had spoken unto them he was received up into heaven sat on the right hand of god and they went forth and preached everywhere the lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following amen it, in, it begins with the gospel it in the gospel. It begins with Jesus' the gospel out, and it ends with Jesus in his life, that he called after one and sent out of gospel It begins with the gospel in the gospel. It's met with the men in Galilee. If you read chapter one, Galilee is mentioned five times. That's where it all started. Galilee. Jesus came from Galilee. He was baptized, went back to Galilee. He called men out of Galilee five times in chapter one. It all started in Galilee. Then... Jesus said after he rose from the dead, I'll meet you back in Galilee. Now in Galilee, the disciples are commissioned to go out into the whole world and preach. So he opens with the gospel. He closes with the gospel. He opens with calling fishers of men. He closes with sending of the fishers of men. He opens um, with with calling them out of Galilee and he closes with sending them from Galilee out into the world. He opens with calls of repentance and faith. He ends with calls of repentance and faith. He opens with Jesus as the Son of God. He ends with Jesus going and sitting at the right hand of God. It's fitting that, the, that, that chapter 1 and chapter 16 uh, sort of mirror each other in that way. That, that the book ends with declaration of Jesus as the son of God and closes with Jesus at the right hand of God. And the men that he called at the beginning, the weak, frail, unbelieving, hard-hearted men are now empowered by the spirit and going out and, and preaching the word victoriously. That Jesus Christ is the son of God, the savior of men, that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He rose again after three days and he was seen of men of the 12 that then will go out and preach his name. Oh, yes, this is the word of God. And we can have faith in it and believe it. Well, I pray